Hello and welcome to Agile Individuals and Interactions, Episode 9. Today's topics, pair programming and mobbing, effective or a waste of resources? And who should define software quality? My guest this episode is Chris Pitts. Hello. Hi there. And thank you for joining. Uh, Tell us a bit about yourself and what you do, Chris. Oh, Lord. Um, What do I do? Um, I tend to be a bit of a jack of all trades. Started programming um, way back when. Started in sort of electronics and digital IC design originally. Um, that gradually brought me into software development and network stacks. And really, I've been clawing my way up the network stack ever since. Kind of fell in with somebody who introduced me to Agile in the 90s and really sort of accepted it and started to use it all the time. Um, so yeah, I'm an agile coach. I am a personal coach. I'm a software developer, team lead, mentor, dog's body, bottle washer, <laughs> catch wrangler. Can we say a jack of all trades and a master of scrum? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks I'm not, for that. I'm not sure anybody's a master of scrum. It's a very simple idea, but it's very, very difficult to... And it's a bit of an right. old-fashioned name, because uh, when the, the name Scrum Master came out, you used to have uh, Webmaster, and is it Dungeon Master in... Uh, uh, Dungeon Master, yeah. In, yes. uh, it was that time, it was the 90s, and, and the term Scrum Master came along. There's a bit of a debate right now, is should, should we change the name? But that's another debate. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. But yeah. uh, as you say, what one for, for another day, I think. Absolutely. Well, we're cracking with, uh, with today's two questions. Pair programming and mobbing, effective or a waste of resources? And that's... So, I, I, I picked this because I know you're going to have an opinion on this. <laughs> and um, um, there'll be a traditional manager saying, oh, why get two people to, or even a whole room of people <laughs> to do the job of one person? Because writing software is a bit like typing, isn't it? It's words per minute or keystrokes per second. Personally disagree, because uh, there's so much to be gained by programming and mobbing and I'll let you start I've sort of introduced the topic yes of course I mean first of all it is coding if is writing software just typing um, I love that idea if anybody has ever seen the state of my touch typing they all realize no it's not mm. um, I just have a mental block to touch typing I drive some some people nuts I know I do so it's definitely not typing um, there's much more to it than that. It's, it's a very creative thing that you're doing. You're building something for the first time. Yeah. I often liken it to a prototype, building a prototype. You've never been there before, or often you haven't been there before. And, and that's something that, that's come up a couple of times in this. You know, the software scrum teams or agile teams usually write has, it's, it's the first time this software is being built. So definitely a creative process. I've been looking a little bit more into pair programming. And when it's done properly, you just hear the two people, the two programmers just chatting to each other quietly. 
and pointing at the screen and there'll be the, the chatter is almost like an ongoing um a brainstorming session between two people one of them will have done something 10 years ago at university that might fix this problem and you usually got a driver and a side person one you whilst you're writing code you're less likely to spot your own mistakes whereas the other person will be like, oh, oh you missed a comment that, is, oh. that and, is absolutely uh, right so it's being peer reviewed in in real time uh so you're peer reviewing the code in real time you're brainstorming in real time so technically it will take a little bit more time to create a, a story to write a story but then you'll get a better quality story you'll be spending less time in a stuck state i don't want to sum it up in two minutes well <laughs> and uh, you know and, and it works it works especially when you swap over when you swap the driver and the and the co-driver for want of a better word but definitely one keyboard and enough space for two people um now you program yeah, space, space is a problem <laughs> yeah well i think now the way offices are set up <laughs> with the whole distancing thing but um, um as far as i'm aware it, can, it has it can be and it is being done online it's being done you know with, with zoom and the only issue there is the cognitive load of programming talking to someone using zoom uh so definitely take a break every 20 or half hour but have you pair programmed in your life as a programmer frequently um i've been pairing regularly whenever whenever i can i'll, I'll add that caveat and i've been pairing regularly since round about 2004 or 2005-ish i originally fell into it by just showing um less experienced developers, the kinds of things I was doing, the kinds of structures I was using for, at the time, it was a uh, ListX company. So it was some software we were working with around XML and XSLT and things like that. And I found very quickly that it does exactly what you said. It eliminates downstream errors. It reduces downstream errors and makes for much more understandable code. Because if you've, if you've always got somebody guiding you, you've always got that second opinion whether your code is readable. If either of you starts to write unreadable code, then obviously the other one is going to call them out. So from that point of view, it's hugely effective from a review point of view. It reduces the problems of saying everyone need, can, needs to understand this code base. Um, but it also goes far, far deeper because it shares information. I've played about with um, fairly extreme experiments of actually switching pairs every hour or every half day. Mm -hmm. Now, there's good, good sides and bad sides to that. First of all, the bad side is continuity. You haven't got a single line of thought and it makes it very, very tiring immensely tiring you've got no focus you're being pulled away and refocus pulled away and refocus but every single member of that team knew what was going on throughout and what the code we found base. in around the code base because within hours people were actually working together again this was a typical seven plus minus two team mm -hmm. So it wasn't long before we were working with the same person again. And so you're always dotting around. You're going across the entire 
next things, the stories that were being worked on. Cool. So every couple of hours, because I would switch people maybe on a daily basis, not on a three or four times a day. I, I was just about to say that. We, we found the sweet spot seems to be about every day. Because mm. I'm thinking so, of yeah. the, the interruption of the train of thought and, and, and coming out yes. of one story and then getting back into the other story. Yes. The, the cognitive concentration level, it takes about half an hour, 20 minutes to half an hour to get back into mm. that mode. Yes, yes. Uh, which th is this, this is why we dropped the once every Pomodoro very rapidly. Yeah. It was um, too much, just too much. But if, if you think about coming in to a pair, picking up a story, um, there was always one person who had been working on the story. So one rolls off and the second rolls off. Mm. But there used to be a mantra that the team adopted. What's the story? In other words, what's this thing supposed to do? Mm. Where's your failing test? Yes. And so that was a focus. And as soon as you had that, it's much quicker to get focus, get a handle on this. But like I said, every day, every morning during stand-up, just after you've briefed everybody, is a good time to switch. And just say, okay, I'm rolling off this. Where, where's the space in the next story? Oh, oh. So immensely effective, hugely effective for sharing information. You can over-egg it. So yeah, pair program every time, all the way. And, and something I hadn't thought about was, was the readability and you're essentially refactoring the code as you go. And you're getting yes. clean code for once of the, you know, for once of, which the work, I know the term clean yes. code has about 20 different definitions. <laughs> but you're sort of coming out with clean code, readable, mm. good quality code, as well as, as well as a bug free code straight away. Yes. And that's something I hadn't thought about because yeah. I thought, well, it's, well, I wouldn't it's say bug gated, free, but reduces errors and bugs. And obviously the knowledge transfer, which is why you normally see a junior and a senior person, a pair programmer, but in that scenario, you've got to make sure the junior person gets to drive as well. You know, good pair program, as far as I'm aware, you know, it should be 50-50 split. Um, again, um, why, why shouldn't a novice drive? Sorry? Why shouldn't a novice drive? That's what I mean. Yeah, you, but what... Oh, sorry, what, 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 why shouldn't they navigate? Sorry, I meant to say navigate. Both the, the senior and the junior should take the same, should drive and then swap over and navigate and drive. Yes. Um, yes. It shouldn't be a situation where the pair, pair programming is, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the older guy, I'm going to just type away and you can look. I, that's not really mm. pair programming. No. If pair programming is done properly, there's loads of fingerprints on the screen <laughs> and it's from both people, you know, because <laughs> they've been. I hate when someone does that to my screen. <laughs> but. Um, Oh, but yes. I get in the habit of using the pencil or the, or the eraser tip of a pencil so it doesn't leave a mark, you know. Oh, laptops in particular, very sensitive to yes. fingerprints. But that's another yes. story. <laughs> but yes, the um, expert's novice pattern is a hugely mm. effective way of teaching yeah. less experienced developers how to do things. A quick word about it mobbing. Mobbing? Oh, um, I haven't done much mobbing. I'll put my hand up and say, say well, I that. Find it, I find it really good when there's a stuck state, when you're like, I don't know how mm. to sort this out. And, yes. you know, you just, just, okay, half a day, everybody, 
if, if, if this is an important story. Everybody, one laptop, everyone in the room, <laughs> and the whiteboard, and uh, mob it. And, and that's where it, the brainstorming creativity really kicks in. And, uh, and you'll see someone, you know, someone who's been stuck for days, or two people that have been stuck for days, it will, things will move. Yes, yeah. Haven't come across, you know, mobbing as a regular event, you know, just, just mobbing a story as a matter of course. But if something's mm. really a high priority and you want to get it out, as far as I'm aware, that's a great way to do it. It's a great way to get story out quickly. That, that is certainly the impression I get. Um, I, I say I haven't mobbed uh, much, but to be brutally honest, we used to use a technique very, very similar, and I'm talking way back in the late 90s, yeah. where if we had a major problem, a major bug, um, then used to call around sort of half, half dozen developers who were experts in the field. And we would sit down and we would work through the code base and work through a debugger. Oh. Uh, one particular case I can think of was specifically Acorn computers. We were chasing a lockup in one of the set-top boxes. Um, I, I was handling the logic analyzer. Someone else was trying to provoke the bug with a, vi with a video feed. I had a few other people sort of looking through the code base saying, try this, try this, try this. We're trying to catch the bug. So it's a similar and idea. That's creativity. Yes. It probably takes a little bit more resources, but you reduce the downstream errors, is what you said. You get fantastically readable software. Because mm. you're always being checked. You're double checking. It's important to always double check because we can all go down the Friday afternoon route. Mm. You must have heard the term Friday afternoon code. We can all write it. Nobody's immune. I am going to look that up. Grand. And that brings us promptly on to, <laughs> this is your topic and I love it already. Who should define software quality? Now, could you quickly define the question? Because I want to, you know, debate over the, is it product quality? Does it meet all the, the, the acceptance criteria or are we talking bug free? What sort of quality? I really, the thing that I always envision when people say software quality is very much related to the result of professionalism. Yeah. So who defines your working practices? Who defines whether or not you write tests at all? Who, who who defines whether or not you write the test first? Do you do test driven or behavior driven? How do you write your tests? Do you just slap in a lump of code because someone wants it in five minutes? Or do you say, no, I'm going to do this properly and engineer it? it it's not necessarily a straightforward answer mm -hmm. to that question, but it's something software developers I have found over the years many are very, very bad at. Um, they are very um, influenceable, shall we say, by senior management and being lent upon by team leads based on often it's a deadline. Yep. And they're being lent on to deliver. So in situations like that, when you're under pressure, who defines your professionalism? Who defines, and that from that will derive the software quality. Now, 
I believe it's a developer. Mm. You've got the, in the typical scrum team, you've got the product owner or preferably the customer direct. You've got the scrum master trying to make sure the scrum rules are followed. They don't, not dealing with the technical side, they are purely dealing with the scrum process. They're keeping the dev team and the, pro and the product owner honest. And then you've got the dev team. So the product owner's looking after the business, the dev team's looking after the technical side. It's those developers who need to focus on how they are developing software. And well, the Scrum guy tells, you know, says nobody tells the development team how to deliver the product. The development team makes those decisions. And uh, I just want to recap, because you say the pressures essentially get people to take shortcuts and write poor quality code. And you end up with bad architecture, unreadable software. A long time ago, I was in a company where the VAT for a particular product was hardwired in the code. It was not in a table. And there was a VAT rate change. Mm. And this, so the code we had to build, we had to put in a build at, uh, I think it was quarter to midnight. So we had to change the code at a quarter to midnight to get the VAT rate change. And I was fairly junior. I was just like, what, what, what? Why is this not in a table? I'm not, a, I'm not even a coder and I know it should have been in a table. So it would just have been a little config change. And the manager was like, it's just the way it was done. <laughs> I'm thinking somebody was put under pressure, didn't do it properly. So, you, you know, six months down the line, you're having to refactor your entire code base because the quality is bad. And even the architecture, it just messes everything up. That's right. Uh, I've had conversations with managers like, oh, we've got a definition of quality across the, the company, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but, but does each scrum team have their own definition of quality? How do you make good software? You know, does the scrum team take ownership of that, of the company definition of quality and make it their own? A uh, bit like a team agreement or the definition of done. And I've got blank faces. I'm like, well, there you go. <laughs> there, there lies the problem. <laughs> There's no, no agreed standard. Um, so, yes, uh, well, it's important it, that teams like define one, their own quality. More like one standard foisted upon everybody. But then there's no individual team scope to say, okay, how do we achieve good quality code? Uh, because the, 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 the definition of code has been solution, the definition of quality, sorry, has been solutionized for them. You, you sort of disempower them from thinking about quality of code in their own right. Mm. That was the point of my question. If you want to reduce bugs, you need to re-empower the teams and get the teams to think about quality and define what quality means for them. Yes. I've got blank faces. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Many times you will. Um, it's a very seductive line of thought that you can actually give teams this templates that they can use for their quality, for developing code, for using certain frameworks, and you can rubber stamp it across all teams. But all teams are unique. And so by just rubber stamping these standards, 
you're very subtly but very powerfully disempowering them. You're taking away their power to do the best work they can. Oh. Many times, even in a large organization, even in a large uh, delivery chain, you're actually better off explaining to the teams what the outcomes are needed from them oh. and then just saying, get on with it. Do it. Go and do it. Do it your own way. These, this is the level of quality we want. This is the level of um, features we want. Oh. For example, you might, you might uh, put a quality level of zero bugs, something to aim for. Mm. How they do that, entirely up to them. And foisting the, the definition of quality and taking, the, taking that power away from the teams comes back down to you know, processes and tools. Rubber stamping a process, yes. And um, um, there's a reason this podcast is called Agile Individuals and Interactions. Yes. And not <laughs> Agile Process or Agile Tools. And that's one that comes back to mind again and again. It really is about the people. Whatever process you use, you know, Scrum, Kanban, uh, Scrum Band, uh, there are many more that, you know, uh, the work's done by the people. And, if, and you've got to empower them. They have to take ownership of their work. Yes, but also you need to have very clear outcomes defined. Um, yes. Quite often I, I can successfully turn a team around just by going in and saying to them, all we want is a working increment every two weeks. Mm. No. And they'll normally come back with a load of reasons why they can't do it. And then you can just ask them, okay, how do, how do we remove this blocker? How do we remove the next one? How do we remove oh. the next one? And basically just switch to theory of constraints towards this key regular product increment. And then one day it'll just suddenly drop out and everyone looked very surprised. Yes. And the second time it drops out, they wouldn't look quite, quite so surprised. And then gradually they'll come to expect it and they'll oh. start to proactively change the way they work to speed it all up. Uh -huh. It sounds simple, but it's not. But that's effectively how I work, I've worked in the past and how teams tend to work. All you have to do is give them an outcome and say, I want to see working software in two weeks. Doesn't matter if, if you don't, as long as they understand why not. And they start to fix it and they get a little bit further and a little bit further. I know look, you've got a working increment. Oh. And more and more fits into the increment. It's a very powerful technique, sort of step-by-step improvement. I don't mind having a, a company-wide definition of quality, but then I want the teams to take ownership of their own, mm -hmm. which yes. would encompass the, the company definition. Yes. But that the, theory, the way you say, you, and you mix it with the theory of constraints, which is a great idea, and ultimately what we want is a working increment Yes. Uh, deliver often, deliver small. Yes. Yes. And um, when because you get the, into that mindset, you think, okay, what's stopping us? What? Let's fix this. And yes. what can we do to make sure the, this increment is good quality? I, I was just about to say that the, fir the first increment might be, okay, just about makes the grade, but the quality isn't great. But again, you then got a place to improve from. Even not delivering, you're in a place to improve from. Oh. Oh. 
Cool. Anything you want to conclude with? Uh, not really. Um, I, think, I, think I mean, that and the, the responsibility of quality. I haven't got time to debate the, it, but ultimately rely, lies on everybody. Yes. Um, I, development team. I, I, I've written a few times about this. Um, certainly good development teams are very reliant on being fed good requirements. Oh. So your product owners do have a responsibility. If they, if they are giving you a whole bunch of requirements that are not, well, are basically irrelevant or wrong, then the whole team's going to, de going to deliver stuff that is wrong, wrong yep. thing. You can deliver it right at all you want, but it'll still be wrong and the customer won't want it. So you, you've got to make sure that good quality developer teams are being fed by high quality product teams. Oh. Or if, if you're using a team, I meant product owner. So you've got to have high quality requirements coming through the system, get made real by high quality teams. Job done. Who are empowered to deliver good who are empowered to actually feed back and also turn around and say this requirement's bad or maybe that increment was bad mm. let's look at why and uh, work it out and fix that process fabulous absolutely thanks for that that's all right I hope that, there's something in there for somebody sorry oh, there's something in there for somebody yes <laughs> I'm Great stuff. Well, fabulous. Chris, thank you again for coming, for joining us. I certainly found this interesting. And see you again. Thank you very much. No, thank you for inviting me.